Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by my colleague, Bill Crystal, who is who's still alarmed, right? But but you're one of the guys, Bill, who's who's alarmed, but you keep it in perspective. Is, is, yeah, is, well, is, thanks, Charlie. First of all, <laughs> good to join you. A fellow uh, alarmed, but not alarmist, I hope. I mean, and I hope we can distinguish what's really dangerous and worrisome from what's just annoying or unpleasant or or wrong and bad. I, you try to do that. I'm sure we need none of us keeps the perfect balance there. But I was very struck by your podcast yesterday, which was terrific yeah. on this on this topic. And uh, I mean, say I, people need to go listen to that before they listen. They should. Well, they should probably listen to this. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, well, but, they, but then make time. But, I, but, they should, but then they should go listen to Charlie or, or vice versa. Click off now, go listen to yesterday's and then listen to today's. Well, you're, you're referring to the, my conversation with Charlie Warzel, who used to be with BuzzFeed and with The New York Times and now is on his own. And and we had really, I think, a kind of a deep dive into this question of when do you sound the alarm um, and the fear of being alarmist. And and it, it was really an interesting conversation because it and, and I get this feedback all the time from people who just are overloaded with, you know, all of the hair on fire commentary. And they say, I, you know, I feel helpless. What can I do about it? And at a certain point. People, because they do reach for sanity, unless they have to go on cable television, they um, they they will shut down or they will go into denial. Um, and, I, you know, it, I, I refer to it as the exploding sun syndrome. You, we all know that the sun will explode someday and all life will become extinct. But you know what? I'm just not going to worry about it this week and probably not going to worry about it next week because there's nothing I can do about it. So I, my fear is that people are so overloaded with all of the alarmism that sometimes they go into denial or they want to change the channel. And this is a dangerous thing, given where we're at right now. You know, I thought the passage that was so interesting, uh, or, or the comment you made that was so interesting, which you quoted in this morning's newsletter, which was also worth reading and the whole thing, but um, is, is that he had a piece written for the New York Times, mm -hmm. I guess, in October of 2020, saying here's what I'm seeing online. We should be very worried about what happens right after the election. Right. And I guess he didn't, he chose not to publish it. He thought, you know, maybe I'm just, I don't want to paraphrase. You can listen to him, yeah. but uh, people should listen to him. But you know, he's kind of in this online world. Maybe he's just kind of taking it too seriously or literally, or, you know, uh, over, overreacting to what he's spending his time listening to and watching. And, and he turned out of course to be Totally right. I had a similar experience in 2020. Yeah. <laughs> I was part of a group. I don't. I don't know that you were part of this. Um, of people think trying to think through what could happen uh, to destabilize the election, yeah. to overturn the results. You did to, scenarios, right? Yeah, we did yeah. scenarios. It was about 50, 60 people, mm -hmm. a lot of law professors, people actually who know a lot about elections and how they work. It was quite useful, I think, and I think it actually helped uh, alert some people at the state level to what could happen if you wanted to go at the state level and then the federal level and try to uh, question or, or delegitimize or overturn results. So the kinds of things Trump tried in Michigan and Georgia, we we did anticipate some of those as well as some of the federal level efforts at the Justice Department and Defense Department. Uh, but anyway, we, we acted this debate internally. Should we publicize what we're doing? And actually people were mostly, very much like Charlie, I think, very reticent to do so. First of all, you don't want to give people ideas. But secondly, you don't want to seem... The odds were the election would go smoothly, as it did, actually, in terms of the actual election. Mm -hmm. And the odds were that whatever Trump might say, on you know, that people weren't going to really rally to that. And so let's just, you know, keep calm and and not uh, not seem alarmist. 
And luckily, we privately, at least, people in this group, it wasn't that well organized an effort as it, you know, as a diverse bunch of people, but people in this group did alert some people, I think, who were able to prepare a little bit. But um, again, yeah, you don't want to look alarmist, but, you know, you can actually, I think we err too much on the other side these days of, you know, it's so, it's so uncool to be alarmist. I'm very struck by I this. I so, right. Like yeah. with Ross Douth, that you, you want to look like you're kind of Olympian above the fray, the partisans on all sides, but you know, I want you to calm down. I've studied history and philosophy and I don't get too worried, worked up about this. And that's often a good point of view to have in the midst mm-hmm. of a many frenetic minor league squabbles it's occasionally a very bad and dangerous view to have when you have a genuine threat though yeah and you saw condoleezza rice on the view yesterday very good example okay so so she she says you know basically you know january 6th was wrong but it's time to move on and one of the hosts says but the past will become prologue if we don't find out what happened before we move on right and condoleezza rice who i admire tremendously though goes yet we will but the american people have other concerns so Another one of these examples of, you know, the worst are full of, you know, passion, intensity, and the, well, 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 well the best lack all conviction. But I mean, it's saying Condoleezza Rice saying, it's a, let's just move on. Let's but the American on. people have other concerns, which is, which is true. One hears an awful yeah. lot from, from no. politicians. Particularly bad to hear that from Condoleezza Rice. She was Secretary oh, of State. Right. She knows that there are many things that are genuine crises, dangers, and so forth that the American people don't know that much about because they're obscure or they're hidden or they're not the immediate concerns. And most people live their lives and in their communities uh, dealing with the things they can deal with and not worrying about whether there's going to be a nuclear war between India and Pakistan. That doesn't mean that a nuclear war between India and Pakistan isn't something that leaders and experts shouldn't be very concerned about, as she was back when she was National Security Advisor in 2002, to take that one instance. And it doesn't mean that when it comes to the really deep uh, effects of the big lie and the and the possibility of election subversion in 2024, just because most Americans, you know, don't think they don't know that much about it, don't think they can do that much about it directly. Uh, it's pretty right. obscure how that would work. And they don't live in a relevant state. Doesn't mean that the leaders, that people like Condoleezza Rice, shouldn't be sounding the alarm. So I very much dislike the excuse of, well, the American people, that's not what's on their mind. It, 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 that's not really what part of leadership, of course, is knowing what's on citizens' minds and voters' minds. And part of it is dealing with real dangers that aren't on people's minds. Well, I mean, it, it's, it's as if, you know, I'm going to think of an analogy. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a fire about to consume a house and um, the American people are sitting in there watching television. They're not thinking about it. You know, the, the, the responsible thing to do is to run up and say, the house is on fire. I know that you're not thinking about this. I know you have other interests right now, but really this is something you ought to pay attention to. Yeah, or the wiring is is yes, about right. to <laughs> right, give way right. and go on yes. fire. Right, we've right. looked at it. You don't quite see it yet, but you really need to get serious about this, right? Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot of things going on here. Let, let, let's talk about um, what's going on in Congress at the moment. Um, Republicans, the Republican leadership has decided to recommend a vote against holding Steve Bannon in contempt. Now, apparently that's short of the actual whipping the vote. Am I right about this? There's there's different grade eight, but still Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise all in on saying that Congress, you know, should not exercise its its obviously its constitutional authority uh, to compel witnesses to to testify. Your, your, your thoughts about this? I mean, I, it's one thing for them to cover up. I guess I'm also struck by their willingness to surrender congressional prerogatives in this way. But again, very consistent, very on brand for Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, and what the Republican Party has become. 
Right, and to surrender congressional prerogatives, not for some complicated, you know, well, but the executive branch, the president has some real claims here, but for Steve Bannon, who, as I understand it, I have to this For Steve Bannon. (laughs) Yeah, but also for Steve Bannon, and this is a case where a committee which they chose not to join, they could have had veto power, I believe, over subpoenas, they mostly chose to, to vote against it and not to submit members for once Pelosi vetoed one or two members. So they chose not to be on the committee. The committee unanimously asks for Bannon, subpoenas Bannon. He simply denies, refuses to you know, uh, obey the subpoena. It's not even a complicated argument, really, I don't think, about no. what, what his sort of standing to do that is, except I just don't want to do it. I mean, that's a pretty cut and dry tech case, it seems to me. But the fact that they're all willing to go down the path of uh, voting against enforcing the subpoena, which is a vote for Bannon, which, of course, is really a vote for Trump. We all know that. But but again, it, show, it does show how far they're willing to go, even when it's you'd think they would have some interest in preserving their own branch of government's authority. And they might also have some interest in not bending over backwards for Steve Bannon, of all people. Well, and also going back to, you know, Condoleezza Rice's, you know, argument that we should move on. Um, no, um, what's happening now, I, I think, is 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 either Republicans, Republicans, you know, there's a there's a difference of opinion. Some of them just want to move on and ignore what's going on. But there's also this revisionist history, which is, I think, gathering momentum to uh, transform January 6th into this patriotic uprising, uh, complete with martyrs. And so this becomes now the, the foundational myth of a kind of a new lost cause, which or stab in the back, which could have implications for our politics for decades. So, uh, you know, and and the obvious point, which can't be made enough, is that, yes, January 6th didn't succeed. But but if we don't come to grips with it, it, it will we will look back on it as simply a dress rehearsal for something worse. And again, I we're running the risk of being, you know, excessively alarmist here. But I uh, I think that. That's where the grown-ups in the room, you know, have to, you know, have to come down. That look, um, this could happen again, and if you look at the various signals, this is a danger. So no, we can't just move on until we until we find out the truth, until we we, we really force people to confront that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not as if incidentally, what are they moving on to? It's not as if you know the Republicans yeah. and, uh, at the federal level have this really interesting public policy agenda. And you, you can see them introducing bills all over the place for economic reform and for dealing with uh, big tech in responsible ways and changing the tax code and encouraging job creation and b- improving education. But if only they could get to that, you know, they don't have anything. There's not no, even a pretense not. of a positive policy yeah. agenda. So their their agenda is, in fact, denying uh, the truth of the, the the veracity of the results of the 19, of the 2020 election and uh, changing the rules going forward or making sure that there aren't guardrails uh, erected going forward for 2022 and 2024. So in that respect, Condoleezza Rice wants, doesn't want to defend that exactly. This is the, this is a perfect glimpse, I think, or perfect uh, snapshot of the establishment Republican position. We're not going to defend right. the total craziness. We're not going to go out and scream and yell about the big lie. In fact, if, if asked, we're going to say, no, we agree Biden should be president. But we're not going to do much to ensure that the big lie doesn't not just live on, but continue to gain power, as you said, and, and momentum and, and, and come more and more to dominate the party. We're not going to do anything to chastise those who, you know, participated in it or, or, or not just chastise, but really uh, discredit and sort of rule them out of leadership in the future. So we're just going to kind of pretend this isn't really a fundamental problem 
and pretend there's a Republican Party exists that doesn't exist. Well, that's right. And, you know, I, I had a little bit of a rant on uh, on, on television last night uh, where, you know, we, everybody was talking about, you know, how reckless the Republicans were, how extreme they were, how they were willing to engage in a cover, all of which I, I agreed with. But my point was, uh, folks, understand that this might actually work, that these people might actually succeed and restore themselves to power, given what's going on, given some of the poll numbers that we're seeing. Donald Trump can return to the White House. OK, you hear the alarmism here. Uh, Kevin McCarthy and uh, Mitch McConnell might take control of Congress. And frankly, right now, and I know you, you agree with this, the message to Democrats, which I, I, I'm, having, I'm, having, I'm having a hard time feeling like it's getting through is that their prime directive needs to be to deal with that threat. That I understand they care deeply about their other public policy debates and and disagreements, et et cetera. But right now, the reality, we need to recognize the reality that we do have this political meteor and it is coming towards us. And and maybe we'd like to move on to other things or change the subject. But somebody's got to stand up and say, by the way, that meteor is heading right toward us. If you do X, Y, and Z, if you behave badly or you behave stupidly or you blow yourselves up uh, for some maybe worthy public policy thing, the consequences will be much worse than you imagine right now, because you need to take it very seriously. If you fail, there will be a Trumpian restoration. There will be a Republican Congress at some point. And again, that needs to be the prime directive. But I don't feel that like Democrats are acting like it is. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Let me say a word about the Republicans, because I'm thinking about this too. So 50 Senate Republicans voted against the mm-hmm. Manchin version of the uh, anti-voter suppression, anti-election uh, overturning uh, legislation that uh, Schumer brought up yesterday. I think it's much better than the original legislation, sort of better from a kind of more conservative point of view, uh, def- very defensible. Uh, maybe there are things that should be uh, changed, but of course, Republicans didn't say we want to offer amendments. We want to open debate so we can offer amendments. They didn't try to bargain with Schumer to get X amendments considered or, or to change the underlying text. They just voted no, no alternative, no willingness to recognize that there's an election subversion problem. So that's pretty amazing for me. I mean, that just takes away can the you, argument that the party is serious or responsible about the moment. But then I thought, okay, I mean, can you explain this to me, Bill? I mean, I, mean, I, I what, what is Mitt Romney thinking? Why, why, I, why is Lisa Murkowski going along with this? I mean, we know there are at least a half dozen members of that body, the Republican caucus who voted to convict Donald Trump. I mean, there's gotta be, there's, and, and yet every one of them voted against this mansion compromise. So I'm sure if you ask them, I haven't really, but yeah. you know, they would say, well, I don't like this provision or that provision, or I want a different kind of bill, or I don't want, it's, there's no real urgency on this. What's happening at the state level isn't so dangerous. Uh, I talked to someone though, who's been working on reforming the electoral count act. So that's something yeah. you and I have discussed, Very what Sharon's written about, yeah. you know, which is the kind of ramshackle way we now conduct. We all learned a lot about this last year. The, the way the electoral college works, the way the votes get counted, the way state legislators seem to have much more flexibility than one might have thought in overturning elections at the state level, the way in which Congress can do things on January 6th, and so forth. So the, the, this is really should be nonpartisan. I mean, this is just making sure that what we all kind of assumed was the case really would be the case, that the votes would be properly recognized at the state level, the electors would be announced correctly, and then the vice president would simply ratify what had and the Congress would ratify what happened at the state level, which is what's happened, of course, for a hundred years, and and you know what should happen 
Uh, it turns out there's no interest in Republicans in even that bipartisan legislation. Was to do anything like that would acknowledge that there's a problem, would acknowledge that the election subversion attempts, some of them at least, are real, that the big lie maybe is a lie, and that we need to have uh, tougher guardrails against election subversion, not more substantial guardrails, not less substantial, which is the way the Republican Party uh, is going. So that's very bad. Then I thought, well, what else could they do if they don't even want to do that? I mean, if they want to vote against this legislation, they could put out a statement, right, by 50 or 40 or 30 Republican senators saying, look, we're against this legislation, but we are in favor of, you know, being serious about recognizing the the voters' uh, wishes. Uh, And incidentally, we denounce Donald Trump and those who are peddling the big lie. You know, you can imagine a context in which the party would try at least to educate some of its own supporters even as it votes against this legislation, zero, you can, you can, zero you, of that, you, of course. Right? You can you can imagine it, but but now to imagine it is to imagine that we're going to get unicorns for our birthday. I mean, th- but you're right. That should be an easy that should be an easy position for them to take. Okay, you tweeted this out a little while ago, and let's talk about Joe Manchin and where he's at. So Schumer had asked Manchin. Uh, to broker this compromise voting rights bill and then and then shop it to Republicans in hope of winning some bipartisan backing. Absolutely no Republican support emerged. So where does that leave Joe Manchin? Does it make him more likely, do you think, to support a carve out, a filibuster carve out for voting rights? What, you know, it really is kind of an extraordinary moment. I mean, they kind of hung him out there, gave him the opportunity to do what he claimed was possible and nothing, buckus. Yeah, I think it makes it more likely. I'm not sure how likely that he might support such a carve out. He seems to be very attached to the filibuster for reasons that I don't quite agree with, but whatever. He thinks it contributes to compromise. I wouldn't say empirically that's exactly been the case for the last 10 or 20 years, but um, uh, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. But also it's gotten tied up with, or at least complicated by the fact that he's also the point person on uh, the, you know, big reconciliation bill. And so maybe they need to work that out first, or maybe he's less inclined to bust the filibuster. What he, I don't know, honestly, but yeah. I think on, but I come back to your earlier mm-hmm. point, voting rights is really important. Election subversion is really, really important. And it, nothing that happens in that area should hinge on whether they end up agreeing or not agreeing on some big spending programs and there. So I think Manchin should in fact go for a carve out from the filibuster. But the other Democrats need to make clear that this is a separate issue. It's really a fundamental issue. And they want to work on this issue with Senator Manchin and Cinema, whatever their ultimate agreement on this other stuff. I want to see whether you agree with me on all of this. There was that report in Mother Jones yesterday by David Korn that uh, that Manchin was considering leaving the Democratic Party, um, not becoming a Republican, but becoming an independent and Manchin is denying it. He says it's complete bullshit. But I, I tried to game it out of my newsletter today. And the, the you know, Democrats ought to be careful what they wish for, because if Manchin does leave the Democrats and, and says he's an independent, what does he lose? And I, I think pretty much nothing, because he's not, if he doesn't go to the, the Republicans, he could continue to caucus with the Democrats, which would pervert, you know, preserve their majority. And he would still be the Senate's key swing vote. And, and you know, shedding the Democratic label doesn't hurt him in West Virginia. I mean, Trump nearly got 70% of the vote in West Virginia. So bottom line, if he leaves the Democrats and declares himself an independent, he'd be, he would still be as powerful as ever in the Senate and arguably much stronger back home as a prospect for reelection. 
And Kirsten Sinema might make a similar calculation. So, I mean, I, I just think that's a political reality the Democrats need to keep in mind. Right. And presumably in Manchin's case, at least maybe Sinema's, it would lay the predicate for if, depending on how the 2022 elections work, for possibly switching parties at that point, having been an independent for a year and caucusing with the Republicans. If McConnell has a majority anyway, and Manchin wants to say, look, I'm acting in the best interest of the citizens of West Virginia, and I'm going to caucus with McConnell now for two years. I mean, who knows? Maybe he thinks there's actually a future in some kind of independent caucus of centrist senators, Democratic and Republican, uh, who would, you know, make sure that the extremes of neither party dominate. So uh, yeah, I, I agree that he's, I mean, he's an intelligent guy and he's obviously thought about this and I don't think he's just mindlessly and blindly going to go along necessarily if he gets frustrated by the party, but also just keeps getting attacked by the party. Now on the whole, he and Sinema have been pretty loyal Democrats. Yeah, they, they have been. back. They right. voted for all the Biden nominees. They, Sinema uh, certainly voted against uh, Trump on almost everything. A mansion supported one or two of the judges and, and so forth. So, um, but who, yeah, I, I think it's more fluid than people realize. I think you can't take uh, either of these senators for granted. People can be frustrated by them, legitimately disagree with them. But it's just, we are where we are, you know. And again, that's what's one of the weird things about the last several months. The Biden administration, I don't blame them for being excited when they took over. They won Georgia, the Democrats, on January 5th. That was huge. And so suddenly they controlled the Senate, which they didn't really expect, I think. Um, and they sort of got carried away and lost sight of the fact that it was a 50-50 Senate, a, what, a 221 to 210, something like that, House, uh, that they had lost House seats in, in 2020. They hadn't picked up anything at the state level. It wasn't a big Democratic landslide, which gave them the kind of predicate for saying, okay, now we need to transform the economy and transform social policy. Doesn't mean they can't try to do some pretty big things, but there was no sense of caution and of uh, no. priorities. And, and that, for that, I do think that's 3.5 trillion. They did an okay job on COVID. I would have done a few things differently. They could have been more aggressive. Decent job on the economy as a whole, I've got to say. But the 3.5 trillion thing was just a total, you know, let's have an intra-democratic session and Sanders is budget committee chair. So let's just get the biggest number we can without thinking it through. There's stuff in there. I am now... Uh, at one point, I was a little more sort of, okay, so it'll get negotiated down, no big deal. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, they'll probably pass something. A, I'm much less certain than I used to be that something really will pass. Mm. And B, mm. I think when people start, look, there is no bill taxed, of course. But when you see some stuff that's being talked about as being in the bill, there are individual things in there that the Republicans, who are pretty good at this, can pick out and wave around that I think could be very damaging. And, like what? You know, like that what? haven't been thought through, that look like just yeah. giveaways to Democratic groups, yeah. uh, that look like they're huge opportunities for fraud, that look like they're sloshing money to people who don't need it and or don't deserve it, as some Republicans at least would see it. I, 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 the politics of this, I think, could go further south than they are now well, for I, the Democrats. I, okay, so give me an example of what you're talking about, though. So apparently, I mean, well, I don't know, there's this apparently provision, I don't get it, there's no text, so maybe this yeah. is just something someone it's said. An actual bill. Yeah. Part of their pro-college education and pro-pre-K, you know, we've got to teach every little kid us the ideas, if we put them together, is that somehow they're going to require that pre-K teachers be, have college degrees, which again is just, I mean, huh. you know, really, I don't know, there's some awfully good people teaching, you know, three-year-olds who may not have finished college and uh, who are doing a good job doing that and shouldn't be thrown out. Now, maybe they're going to grandfather in current people, but even so, well, it's ridiculous, honestly. And why don't we leave that up to states and localities and, uh, and the private sector? And I suppose this would only uh, apply to public schools, I guess. But 
Um, anyway, it's it's sort of one of these things that presumably the you know, the community colleges very much want that because it would have forced people to go through them to get to enter who are not now going into college. And I suppose the teachers unions don't mind that maybe. But anyway, I, I, I'm not sure that's really going to stay in or maybe this is bad reporting. So take all this with some grains of salt. Well, that, that, that I suspect whole, there's just other things like that floating around. Well, like the, the bank, you know, the, that whole banking regulation, um, which struck me as just really foolish and, and, and not well thought out, which no, was that's that, a good very That's a better example. Yeah, that's six, gotten more $600. No, I mean, and now it, they're tinkering with it. Just get rid of it. I mean, I don't care how much the experts, quote unquote, would like exactly. to have access to every transaction. The IRS is pretty good. My impression is when they think there's fraud, they go to you and then you do have to right. turn over your records. The idea that they would have uh, unimpeded act, and I don't care personally, they yeah. can look at my records all they yeah. want, but the idea that they would have unimpeded access to every transaction over $600, I just think that makes an awful lot well, of but it, quote, it was, ordinary it was, Americans think, what the heck's going on Well, here? it's actually worse than that in, in some ways. It would basically require the banks to report the inflow and outflow to any account that has more than $600 in it, which is, is that everybody. Right? Okay, I didn't and, and, and then what they did was they raised it to $10,000. Well, look, I mean, you know, over the period of a year, people are going to have uh, transactions of more than $10,000. Um, and, and so, and their point is it's not individual transactions, but at least we're, we're finding out we're able to check uh, the inflow and outflow in the bank account against taxes so that we're able to go after the billionaires, which is like, wait, ridiculous. Okay, it's, ri yeah, yeah. It, it, it's ridiculous. And it's one of those things that, that should not have, that doesn't pass the smell test and should never have seen the light of day if they were at all concerned about selling this to, you know, the general public, because it looks like overreach. It looks, it looks, um, I mean, and again, it's easy to weaponize and the defenses of it are, are pathetic. I think you that's know, just really a yeah, good point, though. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's a better one than my example. Mm -hmm. and, and the idea that their reaction to the critique was not, Biden did not, when he saw it, the first day he saw it, said, get rid of this, period. I don't care if we're giving up, I'm making this up, this, you know, $10 billion of possible tax revenue that we could capture for this. This is both not worth it politically, and also it's kind of the kind of intrusion that who needs it? You know, it's a free country, and of course, in a free country, some things are going to slip through the cracks in terms of tax avoidance and stuff. But this is like, you know, every time you have a babysitter, we want to see that receipt for the right. $72, because, you know, that could add up to some number that would show the babysitter is avoiding taxes. And if you, no one wants to live in that country, or not no one, most people don't. And if some bureaucrat at the IRS or somewhat at an outside ethics think tank has decided this is a brilliant way to capture a little revenue and make sure no one's cheating. That is what an intelligent political party and an intelligent political leader says, forget it. And what they don't say is, okay, get rid of that $600 thing, but let's have a $10,000, yeah. I guess, uh, accounts that go above $10,000. An awful lot of people have $10,000 in some checking account at some point yeah. during the year if they have anticipate having to pay taxes or pay a college tuition bill or anything, right? And the idea that that suddenly the whole, there's an x-ray into that account for the IRS based on no allegation of anything, right? Is that right? Just, well, that's just, right. That's right. Every, everybody gets swept up in all of this in order to, you know, enforce the tax law. But I, you know, look, I, I think you have a winner, which is let's go after the billionaires and let's right. make sure they pay their fair share. That's a winner. Go after everybody who has $600 in their checking account is a stone cold, stupid loser. I'm sorry. I mean, it's just well like, said. You know, and again, the reaction though, of the Biden administration that they didn't just kill it, and that they left it open so that the people can continue to attack it and to some degree demagogue it, I think they're going to end up 
they can end up having to kill it, I suspect. Um, and therefore, you know what, if you're going to have to kill it, kill it fast. And so there, I think the lack of agility of the Biden administration, I'm a little more worried about that than I was a couple of months ago. I, I've talked to a fair number of Democrats here in Washington who have a much closer insight and are following a lot of these issues more closely than I have been. And they are, they're pretty worried about that too. There's a kind of uh, lack of political uh, agility that, that on this and, and other issues, I would say, that is a kind of hunkering down and we know best and, you know, uh, these critics are unfair, whether it's Afghanistan or the IRS provision or testing with the FDA, we're not going to accommodate them. Maybe eventually we'll accommodate these critics a little, but we're never going to say we have. Very unwise, I think. So um, I just want to just to clarify this. I'm going back to some of the news accounts. The Biden administration originally proposed to monitor the financial account activity of $600 or more in order to fill the tax gap, a plan which is concerning a number of uh, the, the bank industry. So um, I guess the would be the transactions of $600 or more. Let right. me just see. I just want to make sure that we get this right. I, mean, I don't want I don't want to misstate it. But again, $600 is so low. Um, I mean, obviously, this was you know to cover the tax gap, but the six hundred dollar uh, issue. I mean, you know, banks already are required to submit in information about any transaction of ten thousand dollars or more, right? Um, right. You know, and they have to report interest paid on consumer accounts in excess of ten dollars. But you know, this new proposal kind of weaponizes all of that. Okay, so let's 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 move on. Um, I, I, I want to get your take on on Virginia, and I want to ask you about Colin Powell, um, but. I want to get your sense of, of of where Joe Biden is right now, the, the Biden presidency. The poll numbers um, look awfully grim. Um, there has been a real decline. Uh, he's facing all kinds of uh, you know issues about, about COVID, about inflation, about the border, um, still hangover from Afghanistan, the supply chain, all of that. And you know, I, I I do wonder about their messaging, and I do wonder about the way they're handling this because most of the president's activities right now seem to be sort of an inside game dealing with Congress as opposed to selling this agenda to the public. And I think that he's really paying a price for all of that. So your sense of how alarmed we should be about the implosion of the Biden approval ratings. So I'm not sure. If you look at some of the polls and just compare apples to apples, so it's the same poll you're looking at over time. It, he's, they've drifted down. They've ticked down. But he's at sort of some of them, he's at 47 approved, 48 disapproved, some a little worse, 45, 50. It's not a collapse. It's not Bush in 2005, if you want sort of a case right. where there's real collapse. It could be simply Reagan, 81, where his numbers look like this uh, as we were in a recession and, and before the tax cuts, you know, kicked in at all. Now, having said that, we're not in a recession. The economy's pretty good, so that's a little worrisome. Um, COVID, I do think he's paying a pretty big price for, it's not that really isn't his, mostly isn't his fault. The, the, obviously, the Delta variant isn't his fault at all. And the fact that people thought we'd be out of it and we're not as out of it as we thought we'd be. Um, now there, hopefully with the boosters and then the kid vaccinations coming online, we could feel a lot better about COVID two months from now, I think. And if we feel better about COVID two months from now, and the economy is chugging ahead, and inflation isn't too too high. Um, you know, you could this could be kind of a you know a bit of a, a, a tick down for Biden, but he stabilizes at let's say forty five approval, and maybe ticks up to forty eight, and it's kind of manageable. Let's just say, uh, maybe even gets above fifty in time for the election next year. He gets 
they do get a compromise on some of this legislation. They get rid of some of the really uh, bad stuff like the IRS provisions and so forth. And, you know, the country looks like it's in mm. decent shape, at least. Uh, that would be the bullish scenario, though. Uh, what's worrisome is, I mean, we don't, let's, the rollout of the boosters and the kid vac stuff, I mean, just the degree to which it just looks it's like the bureaucracies are now running things, the degree to which the, the administration doesn't seem uh, uh, nimble in dealing with some of these problems and doesn't see how, the virtue of strong presidential leadership. I'm struck in Sarah's focus groups how much people seem to be saying, well, where is Biden? What's he doing? What's the administration right. doing? And I kind of agree with that. What is the message? You know, in 2016, I was on some TV show in September, October, mm -hmm. and I was, uh, of course, not for Trump and thought Trump was going to lose, thought the odds were like three, you know, three, three and four that he would lose. Mm -hmm. But I remember saying, but you know, he could win. Um, and, and a Democrat actually said, yeah, I'm a little, I'm not, I agree with Bill. It's against my interest to say this, but he could possibly win because think of it this way. What was Trump's message? You know, no, no Muslim terrorists led into the country, no immigrants in the country, no, uh, no stupid wars in the Middle East. I'm going to get the economy. I'm a business outside and outsider drain the swamp. There were like four or five slogans that everyone could repeat. They were demagogic. They were simple minded, but they were slogans. What was Hillary Clinton's message? And this Democrat said, you know, I know what it is. I've looked at her website. She's got a lot of intelligent plans, this Democrat thought. But no one knows what the message is. I feel that way about the Biden administration. What is the Biden administration's message? It's not quite, we've done everything we can to get COVID under control. But the truth is they backed off with the FDA and they've, and they've been, they were hesitant on the mandates and this kind of confused, and who's in charge anyway? Who's the public face of the Biden administration on COVID? So they're not doing everything they can on that. And on other areas, it's messy congressional legislation, Afghanistan, which did not go well and which they haven't acknowledged wasn't planned well. So they're kind of still in a defensive huddle a little bit on that and its after effects. And then a heck of a lot of inside baseball, as you kind of indicated, you know, mm -hmm. briefly and silliness. I, I was on Tapper's, Jake Tapper show yesterday, the panel, and we got cut off because they went to Biden speaking in Scranton, which was fine. I never complain about, you know, they should show presidents mm -hmm. and all that. And so we just, but they, you know how it is, you've done this a million yeah. times, they keep you on set because, they, well, this speech could end soon. And as I said, someone said, joke, this speech is not going to end soon. And we couldn't we just leave? But anyway, we sat on set yeah. for 15 minutes, which was totally fine. And we had a very pleasant yeah. conversation. And what and the point, what struck me was watching Biden speaking in Scranton. So this was back to his hometown, Scranton. A lot of reminiscing about Scranton. But what struck me about it is this was, reminded me of the Bush 92 White House that I served in. You know, when you don't really know what you want to do, you don't really have anything clear to say. When you're, when you're not confident, you can twist arms well back at, in the White House. Let's Oof. go on the road and give a speech because we're building support. But it was ludicrous. There was nothing, there's no bill to build support for. It's not clear what's in the bill. They're in the middle of negotiations where they're throwing out half of the $3.5 and the tax provisions are in doubt. So he gives a speech where he can't really rally support for anything. And it's almost counterproductive, I would say. I, mean, I don't think anyone cares that he gave a speech, so it's probably not counterproductive. It's just pointless. But it, when you see a White House doing – and I was going to Newark on Monday to give another speech, and it all feels to me like a White House that's adrift. And then they say, but you know what? He's going to this environmental conference in Scotland on November 1st, and that's a deadline. He, it would be embarrassing to go there and not have the climate provisions agreed to. Well, what kind of death? What is that? <laughs> you mean you're going to dictate American policy on pretty major issues like the coal industry one. and stuff? And on this one, I sort of agree with the administration and not with Manchin. But you know, uh, because there's a conference coming up that he's going to in, in in Scotland. I mean, so the whole thing has that feel of kind of 
inside baseball. Some White House staffers saying, Mr. President, it'd be embarrassing to go there. You know, the State Department really doesn't want you to go without having a deliverable. Okay, that's my new deadline before I leave for the conference. And people in Congress look at that and people in the country look at that and think, what? I mean, we're supposed to resolve policy because he has a uh, he's meeting with some people over abroad. So the whole thing has a feel to me a little bit of an administration that's kind of um, adrift, adrift. So what's interesting is that I think some people on the outside are always tempted to say, well, they must have a plan. I mean, it, it, it can't be as incoherent as it looks on the outside, but you've been on the inside. So you know that sometimes you're on the inside and it looks just as bad. Right. I mean, that, that right. there are there are moments where it's like we we don't know what we're going to say or there are too many conflicting you know currents going on here. And n- nobody wants to go in and tell the old man that he's got to do X, Y, Z. To take a trivial thing, I mean, Elizabeth Warren was on before. So she gave actually a pretty, uh, you know, she can be a clear expositor of a point of view that you and I don't uh, mm-hmm. always agree with, to say the least. But so she said, okay, fine, if they're going to get rid of this particular, I can a tax increase on, I can't run corporate tax increase or tax increase to the top marginal rate beyond a certain point. Here's an alternate proposal. Was, I guess it was the corporate. The kind of an effect, it was an alternate minimum tax on corporations. Amazon shouldn't pay nothing. They should pay 7%. That's not yeah. unreasonable to ask. Not at all. Profits no. of more than $100 million. I have zero idea whether this proposal is sensible, a good idea, a terrible idea, a mixed idea. But she laid it out very clearly, I've got to say, in about three minutes. And I thought, as I listened to her, you know, the Biden administration could use someone who could just clearly explain what they're for and what they're not for. Uh, and I think it's true. Think of it this way. I was thinking about this. Who are the spokespeople for the Biden administration? Who, who, who do you think, oh, you know what? That person can really explain their economic strategy. That person can explain their COVID strategy. That person can explain their uh, healthcare strategy, their education strategy. Almost no one has stepped forward, don't you think? I think Buttigieg is pretty good, actually, yeah, yeah. on the kind of infrastructure stuff, which kind of falls in his bailiwick as Secretary of Transportation. The other cabinet members, I mean, so... Mm. And again, all this stuff, does it ultimately matter? I mean, if the economy's good and if COVID goes away and people will be okay with Biden. But I, I do think, maybe. you know, on the margin, maybe it matters. And, I, and I'm struck again that they're at risk, not just for being too left wing or, or they didn't quite handle this particular choice, Afghanistan. Well, but the whole administration looks a little bit as if it's floundering. And that could be dangerous. We saw this with Bush and with others. I mean, once people get the impression that you're not quite don't quite know what you're doing. You got a lot of people who switched over to Biden in 2020. They 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 weren't they were nervous about it, but they told themselves they had to do the right thing, which they did. I I agree with that. Mm-hmm. I give them credit for doing it. Couldn't have a second term with Trump, but now they're looking for excuses to kind of come back to the Republican Party and minimize how bad things are in the Republican Party. And they look at the Biden administration, and there's not a heck of a lot to latch onto and say, you know what, I I did the right thing. I'm I'm pr- proud to vote. And in fact, a lot of people are saying I did the right thing once. But I'm not sure I'm going to do it again. And maybe Republican control of the House wouldn't be that bad. And maybe even Republican control of the Senate wouldn't be that bad. And maybe some of these Republican candidates for 2024 wouldn't be that bad. And that's a slightly dangerous, slippery slope to get on, I think. It's a very dangerous, slippery slope. So this week, of course, one of the big stories earlier in the week was the death of Colin Powell. And you wrote a piece about this for the the Bulwark, a a remembrance of Colin Powell, statesman, soldier. Of course, uh, Trump uh, issued the typical Trumpian, completely classless, uh, crude uh, comment on it. But you you, uh, knew Colin Powell. And in your piece, you described two meetings that you had with him. Uh, Number one, when you were trying to talk him to running for president at, at, at one time, which could have happened. 
one I think the we, we now know that the, the the Reagans really really liked him and think about how the world would have been different if we would have run in 1996 and then later um you met with him to try to urge him to um do something about the floundering uh, Iraq policy in both cases you came away and you tell me if I'm wrong about this but uh, you came away somewhat disappointed he didn't run for president um he told you that he wasn't really going to push back against uh, the Bush Iraq policy. So uh, again, we all admire him, but this is the question I really have been wanting spent the last couple of days wanting to ask you, would Colin Powell have made a good president? So I don't know. I mean, I, I wrote that piece in the first issue of the weekly standard to get people yeah. thinking because yeah. everyone was drifting towards, well, I yeah. guess it's going to be Dole and I guess he's going to lose to Clinton and yeah. I guess there's not much we could do about it. And I always get slightly, I uh, rebel a little bit when people say they can't do anything about it, something a year out. And of course we've had that so much in 2019, yeah. 2020 about Trump, not the not that the comparison is, is apt, of course. I mean, Dole's a very, very decent person, and uh, maybe no one was going to be Clinton. But I thought, terrible. you know what, why not take a bit of terrible a risk candidate. on Powell? He's not going to be ultimately a very different president than Dole would have been or than George H.W. Bush was, probably, is what I thought. And therefore, if you have a Republican Congress, which had plenty of energy and revolutionary spirit, it seems at the time, and a, and a Powell presidency, maybe you kind of get the best of both worlds. So I don't think it was a ridiculous idea. Uh, it didn't happen. Um, I think he might have won, uh, would have been the first African-American president uh, 12 years before President Obama ended up doing that. So um, I, I don't know. It, it's one of those things. I, I, I think it was, I will say that in my defense, that I mean, I, I think it was an attempt to broaden people's thinking, which I think was reasonable. And I also think it, in a way it was a bit of a, the fact that he didn't do it and the fact that the conservatives rebelled against it. And it was a bit of an early indicator of where we ended up many, you know, two decades later of a kind of narrowing of perspective. And that, look, you and I were much more on the uh, conservative rebel side of things than the establishment Republican side of things. And I don't think we were by any means entirely wrong or even mostly wrong. I think on a lot of policies, our instinct was right on you know, some personnel matters too. But it is also true, I think maybe you'd agree with this, that one, one has a little more appreciation now for the certain establishment types, the Eisenhower types, the Bob Dole types, the Colin Powell types, and that they, the coalition was, it was important to be for the party to be, and uh, for the movement to be a kind of coalition, uh, as it were, between establishment types and uh, troublemaking types. And so um, Powell would have been, in that respect, I think, a uh, I think he would have been a pretty good president. Yeah, I I, I want to ban the word establishment. I, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with grownups. <laughs> there were actual yes. actual non crazy grownups in the room. Okay, so in the time we have left, give me your uh, thumbnail sketch of what's going on in Virginia. I know that you've been involved there. We have a piece by Amanda Carpenter who talks, you know, asks, you know, why is it so close? And she writes in the final stretch of the campaign, Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, is capitalizing on what she calls a bubbling hot witch's brew of grievances about the state's schools, resentment over COVID shutdowns, masking and vaccine mandates, critical race theory, transgender issues, and accusations of sexual assault being swept under rug by school administrators. Um, and at least from, you know, again, I'm sitting here in Wisconsin, it looks like this is working a little bit. So give me your sense of what's happening on the ground in Virginia. You know, the state, so Virginia is one of the only two states that votes in the year, in the odd numbered year after the presidential election. And there's a pretty long tradition here of voting against the party that's just won the White House. The only time that didn't happen in recent times was McCullough's victory, which was very narrow over a very weak opponent, Ken Cuccinelli, in 2013. So maybe people overestimated how 
democratic Virginia has become or how, you know, incapable it sort of was of electing a Republican that it's, it's uh, just because it was, it's a very anti-Trump state, but Youngkin's done a pretty good job of making himself seem not too Trumpy, as Amanda says, uh, but also Trumpy enough to keep the Republicans on board. I personally know Republicans. I had lunch with someone yesterday, very decent person, totally anti-Trump. Very pro-life, very doesn't like McAuliffe, thinks Youngkin would be fine. There'll probably be a Democratic legislature, certainly at least one house. And so, you know, that will they'll have to be bargaining and negotiation. So why not go with Youngkin? I made the case, and as I've done publicly, that no, I just think the accommodation to Trump is too great, even though it's a state level, it's a state race, not a federal race, of course. And it, the, and Youngkin has shown such weak character in doing that. And McAuliffe was a pretty good governor. I think the but I'm not sure how much of this is just Biden's approval drifting down a little. Virginia is very susceptible to that, much more than most states being right here and next to D.C., a ton of voters in northern Virginia, some of them swing voters who kind of sour a little bit on Biden, sour a little bit on the Democrats, sour a little, get, talk themselves into being more open to and accepting of a certain type of Republican who isn't too Trumpy. And you end up with a much closer race than you mm. than people might have thought. I think mm. McAuliffe. Yeah. The one thing I would say is that he's run a decent campaign. I think everyone, you know, these campaigns lose two points in the polls, and suddenly everyone says, "Oh my God, what a terrible campaign." The one thing he hasn't done enough of, in my opinion, is actually just say take credit for the fact that he was a good governor. And you know, this isn't like picking two unknowns, two pigs in a poke. One has been governor. One has no act, no record in Virginia politics. But of course, they don't want to do that, uh, and I'm not giving away any campaign secrets here. I think the reason they don't want to do that is is they could be convinced correctly that the mood is anti-incumbent, the mood is time for a change, the mood is pro-outsider. But at some point, you have to play the cards you have, you know. And I do feel like McAuliffe probably should close these last two weeks by just saying, you know what, I was a good governor, the state's in good shape, the economy was good, I was pro-business, and I will keep the state strong. Take why take a risk? Why why take a chance on? Youngkin, but that's not the mood, you know, and, and all the political consultants will say, well, no, you've got to be more of a change agent, but then right. McCullough's not really credible at that. Anyway, I, I think McCullough's actually going to win. I think people are overdoing the Youngkin mini surge, but um, but I have no great confidence one way or the other, and I think it could be quite close. Well, it'll be, of course, overanalyzed, but yes. um, if, if, if this has not been a wake-up call to uh, national Democrats that they need to focus on things that actually win elections, I don't know what would be, and I, I don't know whether or not a Youngkin victory would be electric th- a shock therapy or whether it would be demoralizing, um, but we'll, we'll some, see. Some it's of always, both, I think, honestly. Yeah. A, a little bit of both. And, you know, um, w- one last point. I, this seems like, going back to my prime directive of uh, not opening the door to the return of Trumpism, this seems like a really bad time for Democrats to implode. It's also a really bad time for progressives to behave badly. And I mentioned this in my newsletter today. It's almost beyond caricature that in New York, they've decided to remove the statue of Thomas Jefferson uh, from the New York City Council. Uh, You know, this we had a great piece by Mona Chern about this. Look, Thomas Jefferson is a flawed person like everyone is. Uh, Yes, there was a level of hypocrisy, but Thomas Jefferson represents a lot of the aspirations, the idea of America, and it it just seems to play. I, again, this must and a reminder of what a bubble some of the progressives are in. Not to realize how this just feeds the narrative that they want to just you know they, they're going after everyone. They're going after who's next? Thomas Jefferson, George Washington. And the answer is yeah, yeah, they they are. 
And it's just one yeah, of the ways I mean, you a, get, a statue that was, if I'm not mistaken, proposed by Uriah Levy, who was a Jewish admiral, I think he was, mm-hmm. in the in the 18, early 19th century, because of Jefferson's commitment to religious liberty. So can't we just take that, honor that, honor this man who was the author of prime author, primary <laughs> author of the Declaration and president of the United States, add a statue of someone else if there's if there's a group that's not appropriately represented or a part of American history that's not appropriately represented in the New York City Council. I think is that where this is all happening, yeah. uh, Chambers. But yeah, it is. It just gives such grist to to the mill of 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 you know sort of nervous moderates who are, are worried about the woke left, not without some cause probably exaggerate how dangerous it is, but then they see this happening and they think, well, forget that, I'm voting for I do think it's like, yeah, Jefferson's a big deal here in Virginia. I don't think that particular thing is moving huge numbers of voters, but is it a little bit of an additional thing on the scale for a kind of for voters to yunkin Republicanism? I, I suspect it is. I, th- I think it is. It, it adds to that uh, talking point. You know that it will be exploited by the people at Fox News. Bill Crystal, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast and not being too alarmed today. I appreciate it. <laughs> I did my best, Charlie. Thanks. <laughs> and thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.